0: Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark.
1: Welcome to the Vet Gurus. It's Brendan here with Mark. The week ending twenty. Twenty eighth of September twenty eighteen. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for subscribing. Don't forget to tell your veterinary colleagues and head over to vetgurus and send us an email. Mark, what's how do we enter how do our listeners enter our fantastic competition to win the prize pack?
0: Well it's almost by default, Brendan. They've just got to keep doing what they always do and send us more
1: emails. It's easy. Too easy. So, yeah, just send an email, even if you just say competition or even better, say hello and uh, what you do or don't like about the podcast to vetgurus at gmail.com. Maybe ask a question, a veterinary-related question or a non-veterinary-related question (laughs) about the films that Mark enjoys that um, you thought were terrible or the films that I enjoyed that you agreed with me Um, or vice versa. (laughs) I do have another film review to put in at some stage, Mark, but I won't plug it this week. I'll tell you what, Mark, I, I'm, I'm feeling a bit upbeat this week, Mark. I'm feeling a bit upbeat Up this week. I, I had a, a euthanasia this week and it was a good euthanasia. It made me feel good. It made me feel good. And um, let me explain. I euthanized a 15 and a half year old Labrador of a very long-term client. It's time had come and the owners came in with their daughter and um, we chatted about how they acquired the dog um, just before we performed the procedure and they sort of tricked her into saying, oh, she was badgering them for a a dog and I think she was just about finishing school, she was 17 or 18 years at that stage, and that she was badgering them for another dog in the household. And they suggested we go out and look at some dogs. And they'd already picked up the dog, uh, picked out the little puppy for her. So when they got to the breeder, he handed over the little puppy to her and said, this is your dog. And she didn't quite understand. <laughs> but so it was a good little surprise. So she turned up as well um, for the euthanasia. She, she'd left home. And this is a bit where I'm feeling a little bit old, Mark, um, because a 15 and a half year old dog and she was 18 or so when she when she first got the little puppy, and she's now 29.30, um, if my math is correct. And um, we're having a bit of a chuckle because um, I've known these clients for probably... Well, I think I saw them the first year I opened the practice. So we've—I um, I mentioned to them. I think this is a second or third dog that I've euthanized for them, and they actually said to me, "It's the fourth one." Um, so it did make me feel a little bit um, a little bit old. And I said to the parents, "Well," um, or oh, I said to the daughter, "I said, oh, I haven't seen you since you're a teenager." Um, and um, you've grown up so much. So you've grown up a lot and we've just got old um, and we all had a bit of a laugh. So, And then the euthanasia went fantastic. So it was a really nice, gentle one. It didn't even flinch when we popped the little catheter in and away the little doggy went to doggy heaven. So, yeah, I felt, you know, the times like that, Mark, even though it was euthanasia, I, I, I thought, gee, it, it, I really enjoy being a vet. Um, I really like this job. Not necessarily all the euthanasias, but, um, you know, we get to do some fun things and we get to finalise the lives of some of our patients that we've seen virtually from the cradle to the grave, don't we, Mark? And once you've been working for a fair year, few years like we have, it is um, it is amazing privilege to be able to witness that whole process, isn't it, from from the puppy or the little um little rabbit or the snake that that goes that, that they purchase at a very young age till the day you euthanize it. Yeah, so, so I'm feeling a little bit upbeat, Mark. What about you? What have you you've been up to?
0: Well, that's ironic, Brendan, that the, 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 um, the topic that leads you to be upbeat is one like that, but I can't say I'm particularly surprised because um, I know how seriously you take those events, and I know that they are, you know, without sounding too wanky or philosophical... Um they are the part of the circle of life and um and I like you have um uh pr- pretty recently had a couple of experiences where um the diagnostic process allowed us to make people aware of the imminent um demise of their animal, and they were able to um uh, p- this particular um dog that I'm thinking of at the moment was one from last week that uh Developed lymphosarcoma, and uh, and the owners didn't want to pursue the the uh, more aggressive uh, chemotherapy protocols, um, and uh, they elected to treat palliatively for a while. Um, that allowed the family to come to terms with the circumstances, um, and like you, there was a a uh, um, we're, we're lucky at work that we have a a room that we can have those events and they're unpressured by time. And so um, you can sit down with the whole family and work through our um, two-stage protocol, have the animal sedated and have an intravenous catheter placed with um, using uh, the EMLA, local anesthetic, so that the, the dog doesn't jump around or get upset. And just while everyone's... Close and patting and connecting and talking about the, their memories, um, and uh, then when everything falls a bit silent, we um, deliver the the euthanasia solution, and and uh, and they fall peacefully asleep. And you people usually remark that they're quite surprised how how they've been dreading the moment, but they feel um, quite mm, appropriate. They feel replete. Um, that it's been done the right way, so it doesn't surprise me that it was a highlight of your day, Brendan.
1: And it's yeah, it's that resolution, I think, isn't it, that it gives them um, that that it was a it was a gentle euthanasia, and and they've um, they've seen their little friend off um, um, into the into wherever they end up, Mark. So yeah, no, um, and I think, gee, we we have some tough times, but we have some. Good times, and we have some bittersweet times like that as well. And yeah, I, I just, I just found it very reaffirming and positive, actually, um, when something like that happens. And it's a good connection when you have those clients or those long-term ones. That. Um, that uh, you've been seen for years and years and um, they still come back to you despite your failing Mark. Well, I reckon um, it's
0: things. a bit of a, a feather in your cap, to use an avian pun, Brendan, because um, I think in many practices, um, particularly when I was younger, um, a, a euthanasia event would be a reason for people to never return to that practice. The memories of that moment would be so horrible um that people would um terminate their interactions with that hospital not on any um you know not on any acrimonious grounds just that it immediately brought back bad memories um and so to be able to um four did you say four generations of um yes yes is a um is a measure of how they they see you carry that process out um in the right way, and uh, and not generate bad memories. Yes. Good on was, you, Brendan. Um,
1: oh, thank you, Mark. Thank you very much. But um, yeah, I, I did find it a bit bittersweet. It was a euthanasia, but um, here yeah, I, I thought, gee, I actually, I actually really like my job. Yeah. I'd, well, having said that, I don't think I could I could cope with being one of the euthanasia home visit veterinarians, and I'm sure you have them up your way. We have several veterinarians here in Melbourne that um, just go around and do home euthanasias, and we make use of them uh, when we can't get out to do a home visit, and they do an excellent job. But um, I think it would be quite a challenge to keep upbeat when you're doing that as you as your only procedure that you're doing um, as a veterinarian so yeah so so I there agree. we go I, I I
0: agree with that I've seen that we haven't got any up this way that uh, that just run the youth and home euthanasia businesses um and i I would imagine it would be a struggle i I think one of the things that allows me to cope with those events is the sort of is the relationship surrounding it that you'd like you said you know the people you've watched the children grow up you know their love for the animal you've seen the dog since it was a puppy um, and that uh, that sense of resolution of a life well lived that would be something the the uh, home euthanasia um, practices wouldn't get they would just relentlessly have the the grief of the moment um, and yeah I'm like you I don't think I, I like to keep it in perspective and have the other aspects of um, of our practice to balance out those moments.
1: Yes, absolutely. So I, I applaud them because we have, we, we've only had positive feedback from the, the veterinarians in our region anyway that do the home euthanasias and um, all the reports that we've had from our clients that we've Um, sent them to have been extremely positive so yeah hopefully they're looking after their mental well-being um longer term um especially if they try and make it a career choice to be a home euthanasia vet Uh, yes so that's my news mark um and a little bit of your news as well. Um, Have you got anything else that you want to throw in before we get stuck into it? I'll I'll do my promised review that I mentioned to to you off-air, Mark. Get into your review, Brendan. I'm so keen to hear it. Well, I've got an apology to make with this review. (laughs) So I'm doing my part two review of the Clarius ultrasound the wireless handheld ultrasound that i did a a previous little review about it in episode 40 i think um was part one of this so for viewers or listeners sorry i suppose you could view our podcast but gee you'd just be looking at the little um spike in the in the um audio program going up and down wouldn't you mark so probably just listeners if they're out doing the to going for a run or, or a jog or a cycle or doing the gardening or, or sitting in bed, falling asleep, as several people do, don't they? Driving, um, driving. a lot of them. Driving. Of them. That's number one. It is number one, isn't it, for podcasts, isn't it? Um, definitely. Um, so, yeah, this is part two. So in the first part, I, I mentioned about... Um, my trial of the Clarius C7 uh, vet transducer um, for small animal scanning, and that was the general all-purpose one, and it was was a very, very good product. And Adam, who's the Australian rep, who's been fantastic um, and very patient, um, was kind enough to send me their other transducer, which was the 4 to 13 megahertz one, the L7, L seven, which uh, is for superficial scanning, primarily for musculoskeletal type conditions. But I wanted to have a bit of a poke around with that one to to see how it would um, work for our little smallies, like our reptiles and our small mammals and that. But and he and he did manage to um, send one off to me for a couple of weeks. But unfortunately, it was and I sent it back this Monday. Just gone. It was um, a couple of crazy weeks. We. we um, for several reasons, and I only managed to do um, some short procedures, and the main one that I poked around with the Maltese um, was a little guinea pig that I uh, had a bit of a look at a bladder and around the abdomen, and it, um, I found it, I found it just as just as good. Probably not quite as versatile as the um, C seven because of the depth of the C seven, which goes from three to ten megahertz. So it's a little bit better for for bigger animals. So. I, For instance, our giant rabbits um, and our cats and dogs, it's probably more an all-rounder mark, but the um, L7 is finer detail for those um, superficial things. scans and also the um, really small um, exotic pets so yeah my idea would be having both of them there so they're both very good products and I was just a bit annoyed and um, hopefully Adam wasn't too annoyed that I managed to send it back without doing too many scans with it but it did give me another feel for the product because I'd already played around with it initially and and basically it's a wireless handheld ultrasound it's a Canadian company and I'll put the link to Clarius on our podcast notes which is at vetgurus.com and it is yeah it has automatic automated presets for vets so it's it's very very simple to use and i think that's one of the the you know key when i was thinking about what i'm going to say in the review in the summary is that one of the key things with this ultrasound is that it's just so simple to use Um, and it's it's just yeah it's just incredibly simple with the way it works you just boot it up you connect it to either a tablet or an iPhone. I think I might have mentioned last time and Adam pointed it out to me, thank you, Adam, um, that you do not view the um the ultrasound live via a laptop. It's either a um iPhone or, or an Android phone or a tablet. Um for instance, an iPad or an Android um, um, or a Windows tablet device, um, you cannot use a PC for it. You can certainly view, it, it uploads the images to the cloud. They have their own little cloud app, um, but you see the actual images on the iPhone is what I was using. And then the, then I, w- I switched over to the iPad and, yeah, it just in. Incredibly easy to use pinch and zoom um, type um, procedures to look at um, look at the um, structures there. Um, freeze frame, um, yeah, zoom in depth control, automatic gain adjustment adjustment, which was fantastic, Mark. So, and it's just it was spot on most of the time. The automatic gain you can change it and, and do it manually, but. Um, I think for the vast majority of people who use it, the automatic game is just so good that you won't need to use anything else. So, yeah, and portable. It's just a little palm, hand, you know, fairly chunky palm sort of um, held device. But, gee, it's it's fantastic. So I think the convenience of it, Mark, um, is what... Why it will sell so well. Um, So the simplicity of it, um, also the convenience that you can just pull it out, turn it on and away you go. No connecting cables. So it's like a lot of toys, Mark, isn't it? That if, if if it's in reach and you can grab it and turn it on and use it within a minute or two, then you will use that device. And the Claris scanners are certainly that type of device that you will use it. And compared with the other ultrasounds on the market, I do have a laptop type ultrasound. Um, and it, um, for the quality you get with it, um, it is incredibly affordable. I think in Australia, the Australian price is around about. I think off the top of my head roughly um, give or take a couple of thousand. Um, So compared with a lot of ultrasounds that would go two or three times that price it's um, remarkably affordable. Um, Yeah they're not cheap devices ultrasounds generally but um, as far as comparing it to other ultrasounds um, it is very very affordable. So yeah I, I think it's a great product. Did I buy one? No because I'd love to and I will at some stage, and it's just priorities with, with um, other bits I had to spend um, recently um, with, with a couple of purchases that I had to do regarding other other options within the clinic. But, yeah, it's it's number one on my list as far as um, if I'm going to buy an ultrasound in the future, or will certainly be the Clarisse. So my score mark, the summary, my score out of 10, it's almost... It's almost like a mark type score, isn't it? And I'm going to give it. I'll give it a nine point four out of ten. That's very so very impressive, a, Brendan. It's an excellent pro- product. Why do I didn't give it ten out of ten? Well, because I didn't spend quite enough time with it to confirm that it, it was as excellent as I thought it was. But it almost certainly is. And I, you know, I, I don't think I'll ever give a ten out of ten for anything um, because I, you know, um, what. How can you improve on perfection, Mark? You can't. You can always get better. And we've had two um,
0: uh, really interesting cases just in the last couple of days. A uh, a cryptorchid castration in a dog, where we whack the ultrasound on, and and we have a um, you know one uh, uh, one of those laptop ones, and um, and it is a bit of an effort to get it out, and you're always worried about i um, crimping the the um, the cables in the drawer or whatever. Um, but um, it identified the retained testicle in the exact location and saved a
1: huge amount of time in surgery. And uh, Excellent. Yeah. The other thing I worry about with the, my little laptop one as well is you tend to move it around and you might pop it on near the surgery table or the consult room table and And in the back of your mind, you're worried that, you know, somebody might move and knock it and it falls to the floor and there goes your ultrasound device. So, um, yeah, um, the beauty of the Claris one too, it's pretty rugged too. I think they talk about it being, I don't know, titanium or something, Um, magnesium, magnesium shell. Um, So it can withstand the the usual knocks and bumps and that as well as long as you're being careful not to do something silly with the actual tip of the trans... Juicer, there it's, um, it's, it's a you know, very good product. So, yeah, so you know, hopefully in the future, I'll avail myself of one of these. But and thank you to Clarius Australia and Adam too for, for, um, sending that to me, or well, both of them, the C7 and the L7. And, um, yeah, I encourage everybody to have a look at their website and they have some sample images from there. And they are true samples because I, I think the thing you need to remember is, um, with some of the cheaper brands and, um the no name um, brands of ultrasound whether they're medical or vet they often put fake images up on their on their sites as far as the actual um, scans that are being produced there and uh, I have actually come across a few sites when I was browsing for ultrasound machines where the same. Same scan picture was put up on different sites from different manufacturers and different machines. So you can tell they're just cut and pasting, you know, an image that looks good. So pretending that their scanners do that, but not with the Claris ones. You can see it on their website and they have a little vet section there that goes through it all. And, and yeah, it's just remarkably easy to use and it's a fantastic device. And, you know, we'd love to get Claris as a bit of a... um, bit of a um, trade exhibitor at a conference, Mark. Um, and it's something that Adam and I have spoken about and we might try and get him out to one of our exotics conferences because I think they will sell like hotcakes. I'll sell, a, a, a you know, half a dozen or a dozen of them at the at the um, conference because once people get their hands on it, they'll realise how simple and fun and easy and cost-effective it is to, to get, Mark. So, yeah, there's my review. So it's a pretty glowing review, but it deserves it, Mark, I think. Good work, Brendan. What's our, what's our topic for tonight? Our topic for tonight. What is our topic for tonight? Well, it's it's sort of a general topic, so we could end up being here on night or um, because we're recording this one at night. And it is it's it's one that we sort of have talked around this topic, haven't we? We haven't specifically addressed this topic, and it is what unusual pets do we see in practice, and which ones. Do we think are easy to keep? Which ones do we think are harder to keep? Which ones shouldn't be kept as pets, and yet they're they're legally allowed to be kept as pets? And we did one of our previous po- podcasts was talking about illegal pets, Mark. So we won't we'll really sort of skip over that area there. But we're going to talk about commonly kept unusual pets, and just run down some of the ones that certainly you and I see in practice. We might mention a couple of the species that are seen overseas, so, and we'll just um. Yeah, just talk about our thoughts on, on, on these animals, whether you should be keeping them or not. Um, and I think it introduces a much larger topic that we have again touched on several times, Mark, and that's whether we should be keeping pets at all. And, um, you know, should we, um, be keeping birds, for instance? Should we be keeping reptiles as pets? Should we be keeping mammals? And, and, um, you know, are we doing the right thing by keeping these animals? And, and that's a bit more of a philosophical debate, but we might, Rabbiton, so to speak about that as well, so I do you want to kick it off, Mark and talk about well, where do you want to start
0: well i just I just had a look at our agenda, and I noticed that um I'd leapt into the topic of the evening before we had a look at um your news items
1: ah correct, yes, news items we did have um two or three little. Quick news items. Um, if you want to take the second one there, Mark, or the third one there, there's um, a couple little items there about honey, um, and then I'll um, jump over to the other one about the other species.
0: Well, the um, the uh, the one that I was going to talk about first is um, the one that talks about manuka honey, and um, it's a bit of a um, an interesting topic for me because um, uh, it. As I understand it it's a significant um uh, um what's the right word a, a a copyright sort of an issue that um uh, manica honey has been uh, is the name given to honey that's produced from one of the particular um tea trees the um, leptospermans that occur in new zealand and um and the scientists that discovered it had certain um particular um chemical characteristics that uh the combination of the um pollen from the the uh, uh tea tree and, and the bees forming it into honey provide it with just slightly different characteristics that um um in particular suggested it might uh, have enhanced antimicrobial activity um and now as i understand it there is a huge um legal battle about who can use the name um, Manuka? manica being the um, Maori name for the the tea tree from which the honey the bees collect. Um, and so, uh, but there's a whole bunch of um, uh, companies now who manufacture honey from a variety of sources, particularly in Australia, where we have other um, species of tea tree, others from the same family, Leptospermum, um, and those um, those honeys uh, have some of the characteristics of Manica honey, and so are marketed as Manica honey. But it is a bit of a trade battle, as I
1: understand it. Um, but- yes, it is. And sorry, Mark, to in- oh, in- interrupt you. I'm going to introduce an, another little um, another little um, interesting um, factoid there, and that is a pronunci- pronunciation of of man, I, oh, I, I,
0: that's I, your area
1: I, of expertise. I use I usually talk about manuka honey. Manuka honey instead of manuka honey. Um so and I think your pronunciation you your pronoun I can't even <laughs> pronounce pronunciation tonight. Um is um um, and I'm just, I'm just looking at an article and that um, I've just pulled up saying um, the con- the controversy over Manuka honey and how you should pronounce it. And it certainly is a, a, um, a New Zealand or a Maori term there, Mark. And i um, flicking through this particular article um, um, Article one: Urban legend has that the queen mispronounced the locality on a visit to Cana- Canberra, changing the pronunciation from Manuka honey to Ma honey. Um, and their their sort of summary with this was that there is no man in Manuka honey. Um, so um, that's just made it as clear as Mark, hasn't it? Mark, <laughs> glad you've straightened. So
0: am I supposed to say Manuka?
1: Manuka honey is the way I thought it's always pronounced. But um, I'm sure we're going to get lots of emails saying, no, that's a load of crap. And you've you've butchered another word, Brendan, um, with it. But, yeah, um, manuka honey. Um, But when you look at certain areas like Canberra, for instance, and this is where we should get Sandy, our patron, um, to chime in because this article is talking about people in Canberra, which is the capital territory in Australia, where all the politicians live or work at least, um, they pronounce it different again. They prono- pronounce it Ma Nuka in Canberra. So um, so maybe you're sort of a Canberran at heart, Mark, um, with the way you're pronouncing it. Um, or maybe both of us are wrong. I don't know. But, um, yeah, that's just a little segue to get you um, off off your roll there, Mark. And, um rudely interrupt you there um, as you were talking about it. But yeah, I think the difficulty is that it's a little bit like champagne, isn't it? In the champagne region um, that they want to they um they want to copyright the term champagne and they certainly have haven't they in 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 lots of countries where nobody can use the word champagne unless it's uh, the alcoholic beverage from that region where the grapes are grown um in the champagne region so um and because this particular honey whatever its name is um <laughs> is um is regarded as ha- having medicinal properties are different than, than other um honeys then. They want to stop other places apart from the um, New Zealanders, which is where this um, Haneers originates from, um, using the term, yeah. So, sorry, sorry, um, I need to apologise again and again for interrupting you about three times there, Mark. So, so where were you up to? Well, I've lost track.
0: Well, I was just <laughs> going to highlight the, the article that in question um, uh, talked about some of the the um the actual uh, changes in the actual different chemicals that are present in uh, manuka honey and um and it uh did I say it properly yes good manuka honey um, yeah but i think the key thing is that um is that while it uh um it has particularly enhanced activity against some uh bacteria in very particular circumstance It's not a superfood. It's not going to make, you know, once you eat it and the vast majority of um, manuka honey is exported and consumed, um, it has no particular... um, Advantage over any other honey, what the active ingredients which make it more antibacterial are broken down by the digestive process, and so um, the body just treats it uh, once ingested as uh, any other honey. And uh, but it certainly um, does have uh, the big area of um, of benefit. I think is that um, uh, it does play a very important role in. In specific circumstances with respect to wound care, um, the active ingredients, the antiseptic antibacterial properties are not, um, they don't. Uh, uh, they don't encourage bacterial resistance, you don't get bacterial resistance. Um, and for particular wounds, particularly things like extensive grazes or burns, it's an excellent uh, wound dressing to facilitate um, uh, more rapid healing. Have you used it in that circumstance, Brendan, in a patient of yours?
1: Yes, definitely. And I actually put a Manuka honey in, patch on a dog this week, which is a bit of an ongoing nightmare case, a a lovely dog that had a a mass that I removed from the caudal aspect of the hock, the back of the hock and it came back as a benign tumour and uh, sutured it up and changed the bandage about five days post-surgery and it was looking fantastic. And sent it home again to remove the bandage the last time, I was hoping anyway, um, a few days later and the dog had a little bit of a go at the area and it ended up getting horribly, horribly infected and a massively swollen hock and the tendon was involved and it's been an ongoing thing for the last three or four weeks and I had to go back in and redo the surgery because it completely Broke down after that and opened right up then um, it came together really nicely again and then it's gone backwards again a little bit. So I've I've got a little bit of an open wound at the back of the hock there. So I, I've been using the flamazine, the silver, silver, silver diazine um, antibiotic there, but I put one of the little Manuka ones on um, this week to see if that would help things along. You know, and I think the beauty of these honeys are that, as you mentioned, they, they as far as, the boffins know, or, um, or, or or their experiences. Yeah, they they are, they. There is no antibiotic resistance to them, so it's especially useful, and even more so in human medicine when they're worrying about these superbugs um, with antibiotic resistance to them. So, yeah, um, but I think you mentioned it in a previous podcast. Mass, they do get quite sticky, don't they? Because we're using the honey there for the dressing, so it's a bit of a gooey mess that you then have to clean off at the next the next bandage change. Have you found that?
0: And it is—it's exactly one of our problems for the the sorts of wounds that we would probably consider these honey dressings. They're often quite large. They're often in locations that are difficult to bandage, um, and so we we are sometimes choosing other techniques to treat those wounds because. Um, a big bandage, difficult to hold in place, full of gooey honey. Just um, doesn't always work as well as we'd like. And um, but they certainly in uh, smaller wounds, um, and because they, uh, you know, the, a lot of the wounds that we worry about um, uh, potentially could be affected by pseudomonas, um, and and hence your. Well, like you, we use a bit of flamazine, but um, those um, multi-resistant pseudomonas organisms um, that this the, the simple um, use of a uh, honey dressing, you know, they don't develop resistance to um, to that uh, antibacterial activity. So, it certainly has a role to play. Um, and talking about the, um, you were going to mention about the pollen signatures as part of the the um, way that the the um, the identity of, you know, the champagne, honey, um, where it comes from, there's a way to identify where they've come from, Brendan.
1: Yes, and I think it's something you're into, isn't it, Mark? Uh, Melissa Um, you're, you're a Melissa paleonologist, aren't you? Which is a person who studies pollen, um, because you're into honey and bees, aren't you? In fact, and, I yeah, am. Yeah, so... You are, so there you go, you can add that to regime <laughs> um so yeah the, the the recently certainly in Australia, there's been concern about uh, fake honey um, um, we're not talking about fake news, but we're talking about fake honey in that um, the supposed pure honey products have been um has been altered and added. Um, what have they been putting in them to adulterate them, counterfeit, um, um, bits in them, Mark? Just, just normal fructose or something like that or sucrose. yeah, corn syrup. Yeah, that's That's right. Um, yeah. And, and so, um, yeah, just a neat little article that was, um, that was from the conversation. And I'll link to that, um, that, um, scientists are using a, Um, they did a little study, a systematic examination of pollen contained within Australian honey and, Using that, they can then track down um, what types of pollens are in. And there's a neat little table there um, showing all the different types of pollen grains under the microscope. Um, and using that as a method to um, determine whether or not we've got counterfeit honey or, or not, Mark. Um, because I think there's a little bit of a little bit of shenanigans going on with the honey industry, as there is with a lot of um, industries where they um, put in. Into their products, things that should not be in their products. So, yeah, I thought it was quite a fun little interesting um, story there, Mark. And um, I'll put that one in for you because. um, Well, you know that um, um, Melissa
0: Paleonology um, is. I've got a chapter on that in my grass tree book, Brendan.
1: Yes. Do Do you? Um, I'm I'm going to make a request on air here, Mark, um, that um, when you publish this book, which has been in the making for (laughs) decades, I think, by the sound of things, that um, I have a little part to play, even if I do a little introduction or or have a paragraph somewhere. Would that be possible? Without a doubt. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I would be honoured uh, to be involved with your Melissa Paleontology um, textbook. Um, that would be fantastic.
0: Well, the whole chapter, so, it's yeah. really interesting, <laughs> of course, um, that um, uh, trade routes, so um, various grass trees produce um, a resin which collects uh, pollen embedded in it um, and then certain um, Aboriginal groups would... Collect that resin and trade it with, uh, because it's a um, you know acts as an excellent binding agent to fix, for example, um, spearheads onto spears. Um, and so, by collecting those old artifacts and looking at the resin that's in them, they can identify trade routes by the uh, xantharrea resin and the pollen that's in them. So, I, I, I do pay attention to these obscure areas of um, of science, Brendan.
1: As usual, Mark, you are a font of knowledge. I never fail to learn something from you. I think we should jump. No, (laughs) I think we should leave our final news story for another week, and we'll get stuck into our main topic because otherwise we will go over time, and our. um, Our listeners will be slowly falling to sleep, Mark, um, as they listen to us prattle on about pollen. So let's get back to our main topic, which was unusual pets, which ones we recommend and not, and just a general discussion about the unusual pets we see in our clinic. So do you want to kick it off, Mark, and talk about... Some of the species you commonly see.
0: Well, um, it's an interesting question, Brendan, because we have been looking at our um, database lately to try and get a bit of a feel for the um, for the uh, the typical unusual pets that we see, and there has been a change over the last decade, um, um, and uh, and the rabbit has really surged to the fore as our um, as our leading uh, exotic patient. Um, uh, Ten years ago, we probably saw um, more birds than rabbits, but that's flipped on its head at our practice, and uh, we now see um, more rabbits than birds um, at the top of the list. And the birds we get to see are the classic um, birds like uh, cockatiels and budgerigars and uh, uh, lorikeets, lots of rainbow lorikeets. Um, people have a fascination for the big cockatoos, so we get to see those. Um, we see lots of um, uh, ferrets, more ferrets and guinea pigs than we did uh, 10 or 15 years ago, um, and people seem to be taking a greater interest in their guinea pigs' uh, veterinary care. So more people have them, I think, and more people are expecting their vets to be able to do things with them. Um where do we go from there, Brendan? The even more unusual ones.
1: Um. Well, um, well, let's. We've forgotten one big, one big group, and that's the reptiles um, as well. Um, and I'm presuming you see a fair percentage of reptiles. As far as the reptiles that we see in my practice, we see probably mostly snakes and lizards. Actually, no, we do see a fair bit of turtle, fair few turtles as well. So we see a, a, a fairly large number of. Especially long-necked turtles, but um, a lot of short-necked turtles as well. So the eastern long-necked and the Macquarie turtles and variations. Um, with the snakes, um, we see lots and lots and lots and lots of variations on the carpet diamond python species, and um, some of the smaller and Teresa ones, and um, also and uh, the increasing number of some of the snakes like the the black-headed pythons and the womers and those those types of um, those types of asperites and that as well mark um, for the for the snakes for the lizards well the vast majority by far ninety percent plus of them are bearded dragons um, and that they they always have been a, a common pet um, that we see in our practice and uh, if anything, increasing the numbers of them. And um, the other lizards we see a reasonably, reasonably fair number of. Well, the number two by far would probably be our, our blue tongue lizard variants and then everything else um, after that, including the, the shingleback or stumpy tail lizards and all the little geckos and those types of things. So there's sort of the rundown of the reptiles that we see. What, what reptiles do you... Primarily, sleep, well, eh? it's a very similar spectrum, Brendan, and uh, and probably if
0: you we probably see a, um, in that last category where we have the geckos and the the um the more odds and, and look the funny thing about those odd groups is that they have their um, they tend not to be people who have a, like a big broad collection. They tend to be people who. Um, you know, just get into the geckos or they're into monitor lizards. Um, so we do have a fair few clients who are, um, I suppose, classist in a sense. They are pretty keen to just um, work their way through a number of species of uh, of one or two of those classes of um, of uh, lizard. Um, we don't get to see, we've just got very, very few people who deal with um uh, um uh, venomous snakes are so lapids predominantly um and uh and they're always a pleasure to work with and um, probably the most frequently one frequently seen one is the um we have a few clients who have red-bellied black snakes and um, they tend to behave like uh, uh, once they they've spent some time with people in a captive situation they tend to behave like big Labrador dogs they're not particularly um uh, difficult snakes to work with um, so, yeah, a wide variety, Brendan.
1: Yes. Well, and some of them are can be difficult to deal with, and we'll talk about them shortly. Um, there's one particular venomous species that I find is, oh, I don't think I've had, ever met a nice one, um, put it that way, um, but we'll get onto that a little bit later. So jumping back to the mammals and the birds that we see in our practice, Mark, well, fairly similar distribution. Yeah, lots of rabbits. Lots of guinea pigs, a reasonable number of rats. Um, you didn't mention rats, Mark. Um, occasional mouse, um, not too many at all. You know, it's probably a bit of an exception if we see somebody bringing in a pet mouse, but but not an exception at all to see a rat. And there wouldn't be a, a week that's going by that I'd say that we'd seen at least one rat. Um, and the guinea pigs, yes, lots of guinea pigs and similar to you as far as uh, the clients are, are willing to spend time and effort and money on, on their sick little piggies. Um, so, yeah, probably a fairly similar distribution with the birds. I don't see that many of the birds, in the practice of deliberately sort of, gone um, left the bird work to the other vets who work um, in my practice there, even though I did see a fair number. But increasing number of chickens, Mark, um, chooks, backyard chooks. I don't know, we've spoken about this before, and I'm sure you'll be saying the same, that you see a a lot more pet chickens than you did um, see. In the past, um, and as far as the other birds here, yeah, I think pretty similar with the with the parrots that are that are seen there. Do you see any sort of work in birds, as in pigeons and and those um, those sort of flock type situations um, with, with clients? We do
0: see we have one client who comes to us with their pigeons. That seems to be a segment of the um, avian veterinary market that's tied up with um, some very. Uh, um, you know people who are in the industry, and um, and so, um, they do send us some, some cases occasionally that they can't deal with remotely, um, and um, we're always happy to work those up. But, but it, it is a different sort of medicine, performance medicine. Um, with the pigeons is a different uh, case altogether compared to our um, companion birds or avicultural. Um, uh, cases uh, the birds that are in um, aviaries where people are trying to to breed them or um, uh, get them to live in 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 a um, fashion after their wild behaviour. We we have a couple yes. of interesting. Um, uh, we have it's actually a bit of a um, well. Uh, um, it has an interesting aspect to it. We have a few clients who have um uh Indian miners as pets and those birds um make outstanding pets they're uh very very clever um they talk and they're highly interactive and and uh, very intelligent um, but those clients really suffer um uh, under th- um quite a deal of um you know disrespect for you know because those birds uh are in our environmental disasters um they often are given short shrift by people that might see them with the birds and so it's sort of an ironic thing that uh, a bird that many would consider of not very much value actually causes quite um some of the of our clients get quite emotionally upset at the derision their pet draws from other people
1: Yes. Are you seeing many many of the the classic pet birds like the small the budgerigars and the canaries did what just statistics do you think with those are they increasing or They're decreasing They're
0: about stable in our in our spectrum of uh, patients. We definitely see large numbers of them. Um, and uh, and interestingly the the disease processes have that we see more frequently when i first started doing this we'd have lots of vitamin a deficiencies and um nutritional problems there we see those still but not nearly as frequently um and uh but the same number of birds i'd suggest um uh, they're still very popular and uh and i think some of the you know i often get people talking to me about uh They'll see a budgerigar on YouTube doing a particularly interesting behaviour, and, and that might prompt them to um, to acquire one. and and, uh, and often they're disappointed that their budgerigar can't spin a basketball on its clawed foot, just like the one on YouTube. <laughs> yes,
1: yes. Which is a very good introduction or segue to the next question, which I'm going to fight you, Mark. Um, which are these sorts of species would you well do you think that are easy to keep and which you would recommend to a client if they came in to you and said, Look, we have a dog or a cat and we see that your your clinic sees all sorts of unusual pets. What do you think I should buy?
0: Oh, that's a hard question, Brendan. That's a very hard question. And and it feeds into, you know, both your and my and other some of our um correspondents. Um uh um, concerns that um that it is difficult. Um uh, many of these, you know, let's just talk about rabbits for a minute. Rabbits have traditionally, I suppose, by many people been thought of as a um, you know, a low maintenance pet, um, that the kids can keep in a hutch in the backyard and um you barely have to do anything to them. Um but uh like Well, I suppose like any um, animal, there's no absolutely low-maintenance animal. Um, They all uh, require care, um, and and there are some that um, only require a lot of care instead of, um, uh, you know, um, full-time work. Um, But um, those ones that uh, require less care than others, they definitely make better pets. And even in within, um, you know, returning to our uh, beautiful rabbits, we, we're strongly recommending that people steer clear of the, you know, the highly popular dwarf brachycephalic um, breeds that uh, obviously we see more problems with. So, um, those more highly bred strains amongst some of the species, the more domestic species. Once again, in our birds, we regularly will see people come in with budgerigars that are of obvious English standard extraction and those English birds have particular um, uh, immune weakness to a number of organisms, but particularly macrorhabdus. And so um, it's, uh, um, you know, the more highly bred and uh, um specifically bred for color morphs or um, size changes, those animals are probably um, ones that we recommend against. Um, But um, I like, I have this little, when people talk to me about the animals that are least problematic in captivity, it's the desert animals, Brendan. It is the budgerigars and the inland bearded dragons who, because they live in a desert, they are more robust and, more tolerant and have a wider range of um, of uh, environmental circumstances in which they can tolerate things so um, we probably are generally recommending people look to those uh, those species that are um, desert animals of a size that uh, they can um, that people can comfortably have an enclosure um,
1: and and we recommend those ones yes and it's 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 a how-long-is-a-piece-of-string question, isn't it, as far as what, what animal may suit that particular family. And, it, and it's it's deciding all of those things, including which are hardy animals that will cope with being dropped for, by a child if it's been purchased by a child. and And then when you're looking at selecting something like one of the prey species, like a guinea pig or a rabbit, Potentially, it is not a good selection, even though it's a cute and cuddly, and that's what people often often reach for with it. Um, and the other comment that's often thrown around we hear from clients is, "Oh, I've been told to buy a snake because they're easy. You just put them in an enclosure, and you don't need low maintenance, Mark. Low maintenance. You don't need to do anything, um, and you just throw them a bit of food every every month or two, and that's about it." And um, you know, I just I'm just concerned when I get a client that wants a supposed low-maintenance pet, Um, all of them need maintaining and looking after. And if I have a client that says that, um, they're the ones that I'd be recommending. They get a pet rock, Mark, um, and that's what they should be looking at um, because I just worry that they want something that um, they want to take their little Instagram pictures of that animal and then they put it back in its little enclosure and they go off to do whatever and, um, yeah, they're not going to look after the husbandry and the care of that particular animal because, yeah, some are certainly easier to keep, aren't they, than others and and some are difficult to keep and there's some species that that I, like you, will try and steer my clients away from and one of those species that... um, that I always try and do with that, even though I actually saw a couple last week, Mark, um, is sugar gliders. Um, I, I just don't think they're a great species to keep in captivity because they're in a pretty confined environment and they're a very communal animal. I know they're very, very popular um, pets in the USA, um, but uh, we, we see a lot with psychological issues. I had two in um, two or three weeks ago, Mark, that we, um, for castration, um, two sugar gliders, and, um, and I usually try and encourage the clients not to keep them. Um, if it's somebody who's thinking, gee, your sugar gliders are cute and cuddly, let's keep that animal. Having said that, I must admit the client who, who brought these two sugar gliders in was, was very switched on. So I don't think there'll be any issues with them looking after the sugar gliders. So are there any other sort of species that off the top of your head you'd you, you, um, deter your clients from... There acquiring. is one that
0: stands out head and shoulders above the rest, Brendan, and and I have to start my diatribe with a little bit of a caveat that um that uh that that many of my clients put in a huge amount of effort to try and make their pets of this species um have a great life, but um if you were talking about a type of animal that had a high incidence of maladaption or um, health complication associated with captivity, particularly um, psychological ones, but also um, dermatological ones. I don't think you can go past Eclectus parrots as troublesome pets. They're they're beautiful, beautiful animals, and uh, and certainly they they catch the eye of people. and And those ones that do vocalise and and uh, interact um with their client in that way with their owner in that way they you know i can understand people's uh, desire to have one in their life but um routinely i find that people underestimate the the complex nature of keeping those animals um, and uh, the difficulty in satisfying their psychological and um, and reproductive needs. Um, and, um, and I would do a lot to steer people away from owning one of those birds. They can admire them from a distance, um, either in the wilds of far north Queensland or at one of our wonderful zoos, but I don't think they should have them at home, Brendan.
1: Yes. That wasn't much of a, a diatribe, Mark. That was very succinct. Excellent. Um, there's another group that I tend to steer clients away from is the venomous reptiles that we um, you briefly mentioned before. And the species that I've always found is a challenge to deal with, Mark, is um, taipans. I don't know whether you've seen many taipans, but I've never met a taipan who wasn't psychotic, um, who wanted to, um, who wanted to eat me, or at, or at least um, envenomate me. Um, have you, have you come across? I have only here? had
0: a short experience with one client many years ago, and um, certainly that particular snake um, didn't. Uh, well, certainly fit into the uh, range of uh, behaviours that you've described, uh, attributable to the species um it is it does worry me a little bit um I, for many of these things i think about the motivation of the owners and um and i i you know there is a wide range of of motivations for people to own animals and obviously companionship is a a big one um but i struggle I, and you know how non-judgmental i am um but i struggle to understand um, you know the 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 I do get that those uh, venomous snakes are beautiful animals, um, but I don't know that most of the people that are owning them are owning them because they see them as beautiful animals. There are other factors in that motivate most of those people, and and I don't know that most of them are good factors, Brendan.
1: Well, you beat me to it, Mark. I was going to say something very similar. And, yeah, even even with some of those species that are not, so the venomous snakes in particular that are not aggressive, um, I still think, why are they purchasing something like this? And I think you were very, um, very diplomatically um, saying that, um, yeah, perhaps they are, purchasing them because they they can then go around and say I have a tiger snake at home Um, how good am I and beat in their chest and that's the reason why they have that tiger snake at home and yeah what sort of life is it for that particular tiger snake because um, if it is just in its enclosure good um, it may be pinned down, um, maybe tubed, probably not, a lot of these um, to be removed from the enclosure for the enclosure to be cleaned. So every time that animal has contact with a human, it is a pretty stressful situation. Um, so common species, they breed very readily. Um, you can get them readily on a licence, and um, and yet I don't think it's a species that should really be kept um in captivity as a pet as such because yeah, I, I just welfare wise for that particular animal I don't think it's um I don't think it's good. Um yeah. And uh you know, one one brief story I can relate is a um a client that um <sighs> one of my silly stories, a true story. Um I was away at a conference as I tend to be, Mark, and um a good friend of ours uh was working as a locum in my practice. Let's just call him Tristan. And um, he was working on, and I got a call on the Saturday morning and a tiger snake was booked in for a consultation at my clinic. And I got a call at the conference saying, oh, that person who was booked in with their tiger snake, um, just uh, we didn't want to call you, Brendan, but we thought we'd better. Um, we've just put him in the ambulance um, because he'd been bitten by his own tiger snake. And um, what had happened? Um, this he he'd gone to the at the clinic because it had some sort of mass near its cloacal region, its backside, and uh, the owner was. Hu- holding the head of the snake. Um, so he had it pinned and he was holding the head and Tristan was poking around looking at the um backside of the snake, trying to work out whether to take it to surgery or whether we just he'd just put pop it on antibiotics and I think the owner was fascinated with what was happening and he loosened his grip on the head and he got bitten. So he spent a good couple of weeks in um, coronary care um, in the hospital and um, I think it was, it's quite a good story because I use it as a teaching for students um, because as soon as I heard that we, um, I had our clinic um, send find out where he was in hospital and phone the hospital every day um, just to see that he's alive, number one, <laughs> um, and to see how his recovery was going um, and we sent him... Um, you know, all our well wishes every day. And I, I did actually see the client um, once he'd recovered enough to then bring the snake back about uh, four to six weeks later, which hadn't been treated because it was just bundled up in its bag again as he went off in the ambulance. Um, and I did end up euthanizing the snake because it was a mess um, in the back, around the backside there. Um, But the ironic thing was this client ended up sending a huge bunch of flowers to our clinic, um, thanking us for putting him in the ambulance. Um, So I use that as a teaching um, case to um, our our, um, nurses and vets to say, look, be proactive when you have something going on in the clinic. Um, um, And instead of ending up having a client that... um, dies or, complain, or complains to the veterinary board about um, the fact he got bitten by a snake in our clinic, that he actually sent us a bunch of flowers. But the really ironic, the most ironic thing about it was that this was this man's very first reptile. He'd never owned a reptile in his life before. He went out and, and thought, oh, gee, uh, I want a snake, so I'll go out and buy a um, tiger snake. He went, paid the money, got his license. To legally have a tiger snake, and then that was his first reptile. So he had no idea of looking after reptiles in general, and yet he went out and, and purchased a um, purchased a tiger snake. You know, um, so yeah, there we go. Um, that's my little story about the tiger snake. I love snake
0: your work. stories, Brendan.
1: I mean, maybe it would be natural selection if he did die. <laughs> And um, it would um, get rid of one other one other person that shouldn't be keeping animals that um, are inappropriate there. But um, no, I won't go to that extent with it. So yeah. So well, it looks like it's pretty similar species, isn't it, that we keep um, our, our clients keep in our practices there. I'd mark. be really keen for, I'd for like us to, to, to get some
0: th- feedback from our. Uh, uh, listeners and subscribers and um and uh you know you know automatically that when you do send us a, a message about the species that you're dealing with and the the uh ones that maybe that we haven't mentioned um you automatically entered into our competition for a wonderful set of prints of photos of mine um so i encourage everyone to uh just um if you see a species that we haven't
1: mentioned or you have a question about one,
0: just send us a message.
1: Absolutely, and that was planning to be for the 50th episode, which is what the one the one after this one, we are is right? Mark, um, or actually, this is number 50. This is number 50. This is our episode number 50. So I think we'll keep the competition going for another four or five episodes so we, we can make sure that those who email us in the next week or so manage to manage to enter the competition. And I have a bit of an idea on another, another little prize to add to the pack, Mark, that I'll talk about to you off air as well. So um, it'll be a great little prize pack and all you need to do yeah send an email to us vetgurus at gmail.com talk about uh, mention mention the competition if you like or don't mention the competition you'll still get entered and yeah as mark mentioned um perhaps um talk about or or, or let us know what species you see in your practice and uh, any questions you have about uh things that the vet gurus may or may not be able to help you with and um i think we need to finish mark because we're over an hour already and we didn't uh, as i as i mentioned at the start there was another little news story i want to dive into next week mark so we will we will do that next week and thanks for listening we'll talk to you next time